welcome to the Spark Podcast. We're discussing the work that ignites real and lasting change with the industry experts at ICF. I'm Kyle Saukas, and today we'll be talking about the immense opportunities that energy storage presents in the market. Energy storage has been one of the hot new things in the energy industry for a few years now. But do we know what to do with it once we've got our hands on it? Like the dog chasing cars who wouldn't know what to do if it caught one. Have we got a firm grasp on how we use energy storage to our best advantage and what might be some of the costs? With me today to answer these questions and more are ICF's Todd Tolliver, our resident storage tech expert. Hi, Kyle. Glad to be here. Uh, Pat Milligan, who's modeled energy storage participation in several U.S. markets. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Kyle. Mike Alter, a specialist in utility strategy for DER. Hi there. Looking forward to the discussion. Great. Uh, so to start things off, um, our focus today is on the optimal use of storage. Uh, Todd, can you take a second and tell us why this topic is important in today's energy conversation? Uh, Kyle, happy to take this question and start off the discussion. Uh, storage is the next big player technology-wise for the grid. Um, it's, it can be a useful tool to help manage uh, fluctuations and challenges that uh, the grid faces today. Uh, particularly when you're adding uh, intermittent resources like renewables, uh, wind and solar to the grid. Uh, right now, this is uncharted territory in general in terms of understanding the flexibility and the way it can manage those grid issues and all the different applications and new ca use cases that it can support. With all this uh, incredible promise that solar, our storage does have, there is also a significant amount of complexity that needs to be understood and worked out understanding the technology in detail and its operational capabilities to uh, really turn storage into that critical uh, new opportunity for the grid. All right. Thanks, Todd. Uh, what kinds of storage applications are being built and contemplated right now? And how might that characterize some of the prevailing trends in the market? Yeah, so the, the biggest driver is, is state targets. Um, and those are usually going to be affected through utilities. And then it's kind of up to the utility to figure out what exactly they want to do with it. So the, probably the biggest application so far has been um, peaking needs and, and transmission congestion relief within highly congested areas where you can't necessarily build a new gas plant or because the state doesn't want new gas plants, that's kind of the best option on offer. Um, and then uh, aside from those, you have paired, uh, paired applications with solar. On the grid scale, those are really the two biggest plays. There's some small action. Um, by you know almost wildcatters, I would I would classify right now people uh, building small stuff as pure investment for a merchant market, um, but that's a that's I would say in third place right now. Yeah, I would agree with that, Pat. Uh, we're seeing a lot of solar developers looking to acquire capacity as they uh, uh, chase interconnection queues, specifically to be able to add storage into those systems as they bid into uh, RFPs that are looking for the capabilities that storage can provide in modifying those profiles. Additionally, folks are looking for opportunities beyond conventional offtake agreements like PPAs for looking at the merchant opportunities that those storage systems can provide. Uh, you mentioned solar plus storage, probably the most common application we're seeing put, uh, put on, the, on the grid right now, whether it's front of the meter or behind the meter. Uh, mostly time shifting that energy, again, modifying that profile, uh, either through simply shifting it to load match, um, maybe uh, some type of energy arbitrage driven by uh, programs or mandates in various markets like the VITA program in New York or a SMART program in Massachusetts and others. 
a lot of times these offtake agreements are pretty simple. Uh, they're either a fixed uh, dollar per megawatt hour or some type of dollar per kilowatt per month payment. Um, leveraging the ITC to try to manage the capital equipment costs uh, for these DC coupled storage systems. And then again, the, the uh, taking advantage of the high DC to AC ratios that we see in solar systems typically to uh, grab that excess energy and, and shift it to a later time in the day or all the applications we're seeing now. Yeah, and I'll build on what Todd just mentioned. There have been a number of interesting trends on the behind the meter side as well, as Todd was alluding to, one of them being increased applications for reliability and demand charge management for some medium and large consumers, be it in the commercial and industrial sector. And then there's also some growing traction on switching residential customers to time bearing rates. Uh, California has a mandatory transition underway to shift all those residential customers to time of use rates, as Tom was mentioning in New York, as part of that feeder proceeding, there will be a NEM successor tariff for all DER mass market customers and potentially to all customers eventually at some point down the road. Uh, so those are a couple of key drivers that we're seeing. Um, I'll also just note that another interesting development in this front, uh, getting back to the solar plus storage discussion, is Sunrun a, won a capacity award from ISO New England for 20 megawatts starting in 2022. I think this is really the, the first case of an aggregated resource, what we'll call a virtual resource, winning a capacity contract in the wholesale market and they're going to be aggregating this capacity from solar and storage devices across nearly 5,000 homes. Similarly, NISO has just submitted a proposal to FERC outlining some uh, steps that they're going to take to implement a DER aggregation participation model as of 2021. And so I think as we continue to see trends along these lines, there will be a growing opportunity for these aggregated resources, inclusive of source, to participate in and capture value from the wholesale market. It obviously sounds like there are many different applications and many people trying to experiment with different ways of using storage um, to earn revenue or provide reliability to the grid. And what we're trying to do today is drive down further into how does somebody make a decision around how they want to use their storage asset. Um, there's a term use case that I've heard quite often uh, that comes up in these discussions. So Todd, I, I'm kind of looking to you. Can you give a definition of what use case is and why that matters? Kyle, uh, yeah, happy to. So use case really comes down to the application that the storage system is being utilized for, uh, often called again, as you said, use case. Um, why this is important and why it matters is that depending on that application and use case, it puts different constraints and requirements on how that battery is operated and uh, ultimately how uh, what the design requirements are to meet that application and its requirements, uh, what the uh, degradation characteristics of that system will be because of those operational requirements, um, and then ultimately what its operational costs will be over the term of its life. So uh, there's actually a lot of detail that goes into understanding uh, the implications of that use case. We have all those things that affect, that are impacted by the use case and application of the storage system. And then as you start stacking those applications together, it creates additional complexity around the operational requirements and the costs associated with those that have to be focused on when thinking about how to utilize the storage system. 
Thanks for that. So there's obviously a lot of different drivers behind deployment and there's a lot of detail and analysis that needs to go into understanding use case. Um, you know, in terms of the consideration for how this device is used, uh, you guys talked about multiple revenue streams, multiple use cases. Um, how do storage developers, utilities, uh, and others, you know, consider and develop and design the use case for these storage assets? Well, how I mean, how is it designed? I guess it's different in each case. Um, I, I'll, I'll answer the first part of your question, maybe, which is the so the this multiple uses. You know, there's 130 different uses for storage, whatever the number is nowadays is the holy grail. Um, but the the actual stacking and doing six or eight different things at once has been slow to develop so far. Uh, part of that, I think, relates to financing and uh, what the utilities are willing to give you a long-term contract for. Usually there's a well-defined need, peaking capacity in a certain region or relieving a reliability constraint on a certain line. And so that kind of forms the core of the, the business case for the battery. And then, you know, to the extent they're stacking, it's it's working around that. So we've helped, you know, developers bid into RFPs where you just assume that you're taken over by the utility for a certain time. And then you try to figure out what you can do around that to make some revenues and to push the cost of your, your bid down. Um, the merchant markets are probably the easiest way to combine uh, use cases or at least re revenue streams, I should say. You know, one use case could be do merchant market. Um, which can involve different revenue streams because the the engines you know co-optimize. So you you'll say I'm going to bid in for all these different ancillary services. I'll put in energy bids and let the engine solve it out. Or you know if you're even a one level more sophisticated, you're sort of doing a day ahead real time optimization. A lot of traders you know really like these things um, to shift around energy and to you know basically day trade with it. Um, but the sort of holy grail where you're doing, you know, all these different things and providing a lot of different grid services all at once and somehow getting paid for all of them really hasn't hasn't been uh, hasn't been fleshed out yet. Pat, no, I, I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, I think everyone, as you mentioned, is really looking at storage to be this kind of holy grail that that everyone's seeking out that can solve all the grid's problems and and make everyone tons of money. But at the end of the day, when you look at uh, all these things that have to converge, which is understanding the revenue stream opportunities, uh, getting your arms around the technical maturity of the technology, um, really understanding the, the capital and operating costs for these systems, it's critical that as you're working through all those problem sets that you set up your commercial agreements that protect you as you contemplate the different, different operating conditions that these systems can be put under to uh, chase all these opportunities. Um, that are out there. Um, most folks, when they consider the, the operating life of storage systems, think about cycles and cycles per day as being the main driver, but there are other sort of second order operating characteristics that you have to think about too. And those things have to be captured in things like the offtake agreement. They have to be captured in the uh, capacity guarantees that you're getting from your equipment vendors. Uh, and they have to be contemplated, uh, contemplated across the project to make sure that you're going to get that operation over the the term that you're looking for. Right, and then really that goes to, you know, if the use case changes over time, whether that's planned or unplanned, um, you know, it's, it'd be great if, you know, the battery is flexible as things arise in five or ten years, the grid looks different, you can do different things. Maybe they can and maybe they can't, right? It depends on the design. Uh, there's going to be some cost to adjust. 
it'd be great if you can reconfigure things on the fly. Um, and, and some of that, from what I understand, is, is unknown, right? Whether you can do things, how the technology is going to change, if the same manufacturers are going to be there. Right. No, that's absolutely true. And although as flexible as battery systems are today, they're not infinitely flexible. So, right. Yeah, <laughs> so there's some, you have to put some bound on that problem somehow. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point, Todd. It's just the simple fact that energy storage can't operate indefinitely. It has a defined charge where it can output energy for a certain amount of time, and then it is fully depleted, and it needs to recharge. And when you have that situation with these energy limitations, especially as you start to think about targeting multiple value streams, potentially with different operators, sending you different signals for how to operate, there's a growing potential that you have conflicting signals and then this storage device might not be able to fully meet all of its obligations. And there's been a lot of work on this front in trying to think about frameworks to enable this form of value stacking or what a lot of people refer to as dual participation when storage participates uh, both in the wholesale market and in the provision of distribution services. So California, through their multiple use applications initiative, and New York as part of its energy storage order and ongoing work in the NISO to enable dual participation for energy storage and DER aggregations down the road. There's been emphasis on trying to think about what domain is the energy storage device connected to, whether it's the customer level, distribution, transmission, or full power level, are the services that the storage device providing a reliability or non-reliability service. And by thinking about these kinds of aspects of the framework, you can start to think about how can energy storage stack these multiple value streams in a way that maximizes the value of the assets while minimizing the potential for uh, negative impacts to system safety and reliability. So while there has been a lot of work done, I think as both Pat and Todd were alluding to before, there's still a long way to go in this regard. Stacking revenues using storage assets for, for multiple uses um, to maximize the value for the owner and possibly also for the grid seems to be you know the goal, that, that whole grail that we seem to have been mentioning a couple of times. Um, how is that decided, like what, what's stopping uh, people who have storage assets now from achieving that? Obviously there's some technical complexity, but what else might be out there that we need to consider? So everyone talks about the need for updated market rules, policies, the whole pseudo legal environment around how these things are operated. Um, I would say that's one domain. The other domain is, is um, utilities optimizing them, these things for themselves. Um, just to throw out one example of that, you know, in RFPs, a lot of times a utility will have a well-defined need. They say we need so much capacity during certain hours here, um, you know, and and they submit bids sometimes just from storage, sometimes from a whole range of technologies. Um, but storage can, you know, if it, it just used as a peaking resource or just used for one particular thing at a time, any one particular thing, it tends to be a really expensive play, and it doesn't look good. It only looks good if you at least do a couple of different things with it. Um, you know, except in a very specialized application. So utilities and their RFPs, if they're not storage only, um, have to find a way to, um, 
get the other values out of this stuff instead of just using it for one particular thing. And that's something that we've tried to help developers with. On the ISO side, um, or you know, on the broader legal environment, there's the you know everybody's favorite per quarters, which are um, every every market. It's just a, basically an acknowledgement that the markets are behind in figuring out how these things are going to participate, and uh, like Mike said earlier, and, and actually not cause problems. You know, there's a there's barriers to optimizing the resource, but there's also protections that need to be put in place. For example, California right now has uh, ongoing proceedings trying to define what the default bid it should be for a storage resource, which is super ambiguous and vague, but um, the amount of batteries they're putting on the grid, all of a sudden you'll have market power issues really quickly and you could actually exacerbate volatility rather than mitigate it. Um, and, you know, and, and there's an aspect of control there also. If every battery owner is allowed on a five minute real time basis to try to do whatever they want, they decide when they turn on, they decide when they turn off. Um, it can it can it can cause instability in the market. PJM went through some of that a couple of years ago, where you have hundreds of megawatts of batteries deciding to turn on and off really quickly, and that creates swings on the whole rest of the grid. So if you're not careful with on the if the grid operators are not careful, um, rather than being reliability resources, they can actually you know exacerbate the system. So there's a lot of work to be done there, um, both for better you know more optimized revenues and to make sure that um, the you know that their batteries are being used to best effect on the grid and actually you know really helping the grid. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as Pat was just alluding to, a lot of times these utilities when they're going out with RFPs trying to procure resources via storage or some other portfolio of DER, there's an emphasis on one specified use case that they're trying to meet a utility needs for. And let's use one example. Let's say there is a distribution substation that uh, is going to be fully tapped out after a certain amount of time, and the utility is looking to either defer or entirely uh, replace and avoid the need for that upgrade through the use of uh, distributed assets. Now, likely what's going to be the case is these needs are highly temporal in nature, uh, and so by that I mean you could imagine that the peak loading condition on that substation is not every hour throughout the entire year, but rather when it's hottest out, when it's the time of day when the most people are using electricity. So that tends to be in the summer months during the afternoon into early evening hours. And as we've seen in some initial RFPs from utilities, both in California and New York, for these types of non-wires opportunities, they'll define a specific time frame in which the assets may be called upon to provide this NWA service for uh, this capacity deferral, we'll call it. So if a utility comes out and says, we only need these resources from 4 to 8 p.m., and we might be able to leverage them up to 20 times a year, and we'll provide you with X number of hours advanced notification for when we're going to call the NWA to perform, then that provides a little more certainty to developers as for when they can target some of these alternative revenue streams, whether it's directly with a customer for demand charge management or just bill reductions overall on a time varying rate, or it could be directly participating in the wholesale market for other value streams. It's this kind of proactive provision of information to developers 
that will really allow them to confidently fit in lower cost utilities because they'll be more confident that they'll be able to receive revenues from some alternative sources. So Todd, I want to turn back to you. It sounds like the drivers and the details for understanding how the storage use case should be designed can be pretty complex. Um, you know, there's a lot of different opportunities for storage, but uh, how they're set up seems to be kind of narrow in scope currently. Um, if the market and regulatory environment is right and everybody's on board to allow storage to do what it can potentially do, um, we'll have a clear enough picture to, to max it out, correct? Well, almost. Um, you know, the more definition around the regulations and, and markets will will pull that curtain back a bit and let the light in quite a bit. Um, however, there's uh, there's still more detail around understanding the operational costs associated with uh, being able to participate in those ways. And you know, we've talked a bit about that already, um, but haven't gotten too specific. So now we can we can dig in with a little bit. Um, so you know, as we as we mentioned earlier, as you use these batteries, um, it wears them down, and it wears them down much faster than most other resources that we see on the grid today. Um, solar panels might uh, change at a half a percent per year. Uh, battery systems will degrade closer to something like two to three percent per year, so they degrade quite fast. Um, and there's a cost associated with that, and it's directly going to be a function of um, uh, how that system's operated, how many applications you're trying to support, and how many times a day essentially you cycle energy through that battery. And that cycling of that energy is really what's wearing that down. So if you consider storage as a long-term resource, meaning greater than 10 years, something that you know might be on the order of 20 or 30, you're going to have to add batteries or additional capacity to that resource over time. Um, and that costs money, of course. So, so because of that, you're going to need to augment that capacity. Uh, over time to make that allow that resource to last the entire term of that project and that does have a cost associated with it. Uh, what does that actually cost to uh, in terms of degradation? Well some numbers the numbers can range anywhere from something on the order of eight dollars to twelve dollars a megawatt hour when levelized over the term of the project. Um, those numbers aren't well understood today because battery prices and, and subsequent costs are coming down constantly and there are a lot of market factors that move those values around and that's part of what makes it hard to pull that curtain all the way open and shed light completely on all the things that we need to understand. Um, but with that kept in mind, again, as you, as you think through those operational costs, which really are driven mainly by having to potentially augment that battery capacity over time, uh, it can push you away from either doing multiple use cases or keep you from uh, implementing certain uh, certain applications that would uh, excessively wear the battery and make it difficult to uh, make your cost versus revenue equation balance out. So I want to touch on one point here. You keep referencing batteries. Um, obviously, they're the most popular use of energy storage right now, um, but can you kind of touch on why that is? And, you know, how might different storage technologies affect the use case decision, even between different types of batteries um, and battery and non-battery? Kyle, that's a great question, because for energy storage, there are a lot of different technologies that could be implemented, and they all have their unique characteristics in terms of their operational capabilities, um, their capital costs, as well as their operating costs, and that include um, whether or not you need to 
uh, add additional energy capacity over the term. And you'll hear people talk about pumped hydro and uh, compressed air, and there's even technologies out there around uh, called ice storage or cryogenic storage, um, and also known as thermal storage. Um, that uh, all have their different characteristics and in some cases you can get very long uh, lifetimes or very low degradation rates out of those systems but they have other limitations like very low power capacity so they can't support every use case or would be challenged to meeting something like a, a frequency regulation application. Um, in other cases they're very limited in terms of their ability to meet um, certain energy densities. So uh, if you're trying to put an energy storage system in uh, your home, uh, you want something of a relatively, relatively high energy density, and that's where things like batteries come in and, and are, are, are very popular for that approach. The reason that the industry focuses so much on batteries, I think, really comes down to two things. The, the biggest piece of it being there's a significant amount of synergy with uh, the electric vehicle industry that's driven that technology that has a similar form factor um, and is helping to really drive those costs down. So it's, it's brought battery technology and in particular lithium-ion technology to the forefront today. And it, it tends to bring that conversion of convergence of application cost and, uh, and timing all together. So, so that's one reason. And the second reason that batteries are, are so popular uh, for such a popular technology for storage today really has to do with their flexibility. Of all the storage technologies out there, really by in general changing the settings or the control settings in the system, they can operate very differently in terms of duration and power output. And not all technologies can meet that, that capability and that's what makes them so interesting, interesting for uh, use case stacking and, and attacking multiple revenue streams. We've talked about the revenue, regulatory, and technical considerations for how you decide how to use an uh, energy storage asset, but um, what else could enter the equation that we might not have touched on? One other major area of development that needs to be taking place too is, and there's some movement here, it just gets talked about less, I think, is on the scheduling, um, and especially in the merchant markets. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's a day-ahead market in which all services are co-optimized, but few uh, operators really expect to get all the value that they want out of the day-ahead market. Um, one of the strongest things about batteries is the ability to instantly react, and so they've been, um, a lot of the independent owners of batteries anticipate doing a lot of real-time trading and co-optimizing between the day-ahead and real-time markets, and all of that requires a certain amount of forecasting and, and trying to do um, really mathematically complex um, projections of what the real time is going to look like. And then, you know, add in the fact that you have a state of charge to manage and you might have other obligations with contracts. Um, Mike mentioned the reliability services and the possibility of dual signals earlier. Um, and those, those puzzles can get really complicated. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Pat, and building on that, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier too, but if you start thinking about more distributed storage assets uh, interconnected on the distribution system or behind the customer's meter, and they have direct access to the wholesale market, then you have to start thinking about some of the issues involved with what we'll call peer bypassing, where storage is participating in the wholesale market but not actively considering real-time distribution system conditions. And that has the potential to adversely impact the distribution system, and California and New York, again, have taken some of the leading efforts here to sort of proactively define 
operational coordination processes between the ISO, the utility, and the DER owner or aggregator to make sure that distribution system conditions are taken into account so that way if one of these distributed storage assets is responding to a wholesale signal, it's not going to compromise the safety and reliability of the distribution system. And that same set of processes will play out too for those resources that we're talking about in terms of dual participation. If there are conflicting signals between the ISO versus the utility, how can those parties work together to ensure that the ISO schedule is updated or uh, the asset takes a D rate to make sure that it can still meet uh, those reliability services. It's all an evolving framework and something that needs to continue, uh, but definitely some key early steps taken by California and New York to take through those kinds of issues. Uh, looking ahead to the next five years, what predictions for change can you guys make for me today? Kyle, I, I wouldn't mind taking that one first. I think there's some low-hanging fruit there in terms of um, costs are going to continue to come down. We're going to see higher and higher penetration drive that um, of various types in terms of storage. Again, the EV market is going to help drive that so that we'll see more and more batteries themselves coming online. Um, relative to that or related to that, uh, I also expect the penetration of new technology um, or other technologies coming into play, and that's both on battery types themselves. And I think we'll see also some of those other technologies we mentioned earlier, like pumped hydro and compressed air and maybe more exotic things starting to come in in specific applications. Talking a little bit more about the applications, um, standalone storage I think is going to have a bigger role in the future as utilities and other entities get more comfortable with the technology and understand how to leverage it as a resource and then also assign value to it. Um, so that developers and uh, investors can figure out really how to get that revenue from that, from those opportunities. And then, um, you know, to take that application and use case point farther, um, grid services um, are going to be an important part of that. And I think uh, seeing those things that really benefit the grid, um, uh, whether it's at the transmission or distribution level, are really going to help pull storage along and uh, really create the diversity that, that everyone's been talking about. That's great. And I'll add two things that I see developing over the next five years potentially. I think the first is around the possibility of using storage as a transmission asset. Uh, the FERC has previously ruled that energy storage was eligible to serve as a single-use transmission asset, so just targeting one use case. But they also issued a policy statement exploring the possibility that storage can have multiple applications and, and try to be a regulated asset on top of also participating in the wholesale market for other revenue streams. However, they did call out three possible issues along with this kind of participation model, one being around the potential that there's a double recovery of costs by the storage asset. Um, it can also potentially suppress competitive prices in the wholesale market by virtue of getting all these different revenue sources. And then also, if the ISO is actively operating the storage device, will that jeopardize its independence? And interestingly, the California ISO started a storage as a transmission asset initiative in 2018 to explore the potential for these storage assets to serve these multi-use applications. and. 
they inevitably suspended the initiative because stakeholders through that process identified a number of significant barriers, including whether or not the crisis could actually uh, forecast with enough confidence when the storage assets would actually be needed by the CAISO for reliability needs and how to actually forecast what kinds of revenues these assets could make uh, while participating directly in the wholesale market. So this hit a, a bit of a bump in the road right now. It will be interesting to see if there is any further progress on this moving forward. Uh, I think a second key development that might happen over the next five years is just greater convergence across the industry around how to conduct benefit cost analyses for storage. As Pat and Todd were alluding to earlier, the value of any given storage project is going to be highly dependent on the specific project, varying due to factors like the use case or use cases, what technology is being used, where in the system is it located, if it is participating in the market, what kind of rules are there governing the compensation. So there's been a, a lot of discussion around this to date and some differences of opinion, but I think moving forward, there will be some convergence and uh, we'll start to see some more alignment across the industry about how to actually conduct these analyses. Awesome. Thanks, guys, Todd, Pat, and Mike. Appreciate you guys coming in uh, for this episode of The Spark and providing your insights. Um, for all of our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to The Spark and let us know what you think needs to happen to fully take advantage of energy storage and its opportunity for uh, the energy industry. How do you see this technology bringing more value to the grid? Uh, and other questions like that can be addressed to us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Just tag at ICF within your comments. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you.